Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Gronini A, and this week, what can we learn from South Africa's Omicron wave? If we think back to the end of November, the new variant Omicron had people worried for two main reasons. It appeared to be more transmissible, and there were hints that it could evade any immunity we had gained that was either from vaccines or having COVID. That was enough for the World Health Organization to warn that we could be facing a very dangerous situation, for global stock markets to fall when it was officially labelled a variant of concern, and for countries around the world to introduce precautionary travel restrictions at the start of December. We didn't know what exact effect Omicron might have on people or hospitals, but the world looked on with concern as cases in South Africa soared. A few weeks on from that and now, other countries, including Ireland, are in the middle of that same surge, while South Africa appears to be coming out the other side. So what has South Africa learned about this new variant of concern? Is it really milder than previous variants? How were hospitals in South Africa affected by this wave? And what can we learn from how we reacted to Omicron? I'm delighted to have Mia Mallon joining us on the podcast today, who is editor-in-chief of Becca Sisa an award-winning health journalism centre in South Africa. Mia, rewind back a few weeks and remind us how and when Omicron was first identified. Yes, so Omicron was first reported in Botswana, which is a neighbouring country of South Africa. And what happened there is there were four international travellers that tested positive. That was on November 11th, and it was about four days after that entered the country. And when scientists then looked at their test results and their test samples and analysed the genetic codes of those samples, they saw a few worrying changes and um, they then identified the Omicron variant. And then the Omicron variant was then also identified in South Africa, but later on the 23rd of November, and two days after that, our country publicly announced that we detected many Omicron cases, and that was specifically in South Africa's capital city, Tuani, which was formerly known as Pretoria. And the outbreaks there mainly started at universities in Tuani. And that meant the variant spread unusually fast, not just because, as we now know, it's more transmissible, but also because it spread within congregated settings where there were relatively large numbers of people gathered in indoor spaces because the students, of course, attended classes. South Africa is quite good at spotting new COVID variants. Why is that? Yes, you're right. We are quite good at spotting new variants. Um, Our scientists, for instance, also identified the beta variant and played a very important role in helping scientists in the UK to identify the alpha variant. Now, the reason for that is because we have very good special form of scientists called bioinformaticians. Those are the type of scientists who identify variants. And when COVID happened, we realized we didn't have enough of these. Even though though we had good ones, we had to create more. So our government invested quite significant amounts of resources to develop more bioinformaticians and also facilities, labs and those and the right machines to analyze the genes of viruses 
analysis and to develop structures that can then better respond to COVID. And one of those structures is the Network for Genomic Surveillance in our country, which is a network of labs and scientists and also academic institutions who now all work together on identifying variants across the country. And in many ways, our history of a very bad HIV pandemic in our country also helped us to have ready-made expertise in this field. So, for instance, one of the leaders in our country, Professor Tulia de Oliveira, already long before COVID, did a significant amount of work on tracking different variants of the HIV virus. And that work, for instance, led to quite groundbreaking results in the HIV world that showed us that most young African women were infected by men at least five years older than them. And that is why he is also um, now the leader in our country that leads this network. And um, he had pretty much ready-made skills when this pandemic arrived. It's a lesson we keep learning in the pandemic that previous health crises a country faced helped them better prepare for this one. When Omicron first emerged, Mia, we knew very little about it. But what were the things that we did know? So what we saw in South Africa rather quickly was that this spread at a pace that was far faster than our previous third wave, which was dominated by the Delta variant, as in most countries in the world. The first thing we saw was that there were many more young people, so people of 20, younger than 20, who were um, infected, but also who were hospitalized. But that sort of, you could make sense out of it because it started at universities, that's sort of like the age of university students. But when we then looked at other provinces where it spread in a different way, it didn't start at universities, we still saw high proportions of young people being submitted, particularly kids who were younger than five. But that has now changed. That trend changed to older, more larger proportions of older people again. But the other things that quickly emerged was, first of all, when people were admitted, cases of COVID cases, so the infections were higher and spread faster than Delta, but the proportion of hospital admissions were significantly lower. So if you, for instance, looked at Swani, the city where our outbreak started, if you look at the first month of that outbreak and you compare it to Delta, then our admission rates for hospitals were about a quarter of the proportion that was admitted during Delta. And when the Omicron cases got into hospital, they also didn't fall as ill as Delta cases. We'll look at hospitalizations in more detail in a bit, but first... Just how does Omicron compare to the variants that we've had before now? So if our Omicron wave is continuing to decline at its current pace, then we're likely to see the end of our wave in about just under two weeks from now. And if that all happens, then it means that our Omicron wave would have been about a half of the duration of our Delta wave. So we saw cases increase at a much faster rate, but also decreasing at a much faster rate. 
We had more cases. Our Omicron cases peaked at about 117% of our Delta peak. So there were in numbers more cases. But as I've mentioned, hospitalizations were a much smaller proportion. So we only had, even though we had many more Omicron cases, we only had 63% of the hospitalizations that we had during Delta and deaths. It's now been quite a, you know, more than a month after our, our wave had started. So there's been a long period for people to allow for deaths. And it looks like we're now at about 20% of the deaths of Delta and as if it's starting to stabilize. So in a nutshell, basically, it means that even though we had a smaller proportion of cases hospitalized, it didn't necessarily mean in numbers it was so much fewer because there were so many cases, many more cases for Omicron. But what it did mean is when people ended up in hospital, they were far less likely to fall severely ill, so they were less likely to require expensive resources such as ventilation or supplemental oxygen or end up in an intensive care unit. And because of that, all in all, put less strain on our health system because we didn't have patients that were as sick when they got to hospital as they were when with Delta. Now that You've passed the peak in South Africa. How are hospitals coping? So hospitals are coping quite well now because our hospital admissions are declining. And even during the peak of our Omicron wave, we did not have uh, overwhelming of the health system. We had enough facilities and mainly, as I've previously mentioned, because people didn't fall so ill. So there wasn't that crisis like uh, for, like we had in other waves of looking for oxygen or looking for enough ventilators because fewer people required them. So at the moment, our hospitals are most certainly coping. Also, we're looking at, um, we, for instance, remove, our government removed a curfew recently that we had in the country and we're starting to go back to more normal living, but masks are still mandatory. Our vaccination levels are low. And it's not just because we started late. It's also because, you know, we've we've done some things wrong. We haven't had enough public education. So the stage we're moving into now is um, mandatory vaccinations that we're likely to see early in the new year being implemented. A more general question, I suppose, about healthcare. What's healthcare system like in South Africa? Is it easily overwhelmed? Is there enough capacity to deal with with surges like these? So South Africa is a country of great inequality. And that is really our mirror. Our our healthcare system is like a mirror of that. So about 85% of our population are poor. And they rely on a public healthcare system that is relatively dilapidated. And 15% of the country can afford medical insurance and they have access to world-class healthcare. It's, you know, just like the same type of healthcare that you'll find at a good private system in Europe. But if you look at the kind of GDP money that's spent on healthcare in the country, we spend about 8% of our GDP on healthcare and 4% of that in other words, half of it goes to the public health care system, which caters for 85% of the country, 
and the other 4% is spent on private healthcare, which only goes for 15% of the country. So that could give you an indication of how much better resourced the private healthcare system is. Now, when it came to COVID, yes, of course, the public healthcare system was more overwhelmed than the private healthcare system because of the distribution of resources and more people relying on it. But um, we certainly also saw private hospitals struggling sometimes to cope to have enough oxygen and have enough beds, but they obviously cope better than the public health system. What's the immunity context to that then? What was the vaccine rollout like? How was supply and uptake of vaccines? So in South Africa, we have quite high levels of natural immunity, ironically, because we got very late access to vaccines. So more people got the opportunity to be infected. So our surveys here show that our levels of natural immunity is between 60 and 80%, which is high if you compare it to other countries. But if you look at our vaccination levels, then that is lower, much lower than countries like Ireland. So we have only vaccinated 20, fully vaccinated 26% of people in South Africa. And if you compare that to a country such as Ireland, where it's more than three quarters, then you could imagine that how far behind we are with you. So, um, but in, in the province in Gauteng, where Tuani is based, where our Omicron outbreak started, there were specifically high levels of natural immunity, but it was a province that had lower proportions than the rest of the country vaccinated. So, you know, it wasn't even a quarter of people in Gauteng when it broke out that had been vaccinated quite a, quite a bit lower. When it comes to vaccination, only about a quarter of our population have been fully vaccinated. And in terms of boosters, we only started to roll for adults um, towards the end of December. So that is still very far behind. You know, we have covered very, very few people with boosters. And we know from research that Natural immunity provides, as does 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 vaccination, provides immunity, but it depends on how recently you had that vaccination. So we know that about six months after Pfizer vaccinations, for instance, immunity starts to wane. And the same thing happens with natural immunity. So when it comes to protection from natural immunity, how long ago you were infected plays a role on how resilient your immune system would be in protecting you against a new variant. At the start, there were suggestions that Omicron could be mild. And we've heard from you that it certainly does appear to have been the case in South Africa. Do we have studies or evidence now to back that up? Yes, we certainly have quite a few studies that have come out now from Hong Kong and also from Cambridge University that provides biological evidence that explain why Omicron doesn't cause severe disease. And most of these studies come to the conclusion that Omicron seems to not infect your lungs severely. It seems to stay more in your nose and in your throat. And because it doesn't affect your lungs 
as severely as, for instance, the Delta variant, it makes you less sick. And that is why hospital patients then require less serious treatment. And because of that biological evidence um, that is now emerging, it seems like obviously vaccination and natural immunity plays a significant role in how sick it makes us because it provides us with protection. But it does seem to emerge that the main reason why it doesn't cause such severe disease could possibly be linked to the facts less um, virulent. That's interesting. And when you say the symptoms are milder, does that mean you don't get a cough or you might not lose your sense of taste or smell? Well, it means that you don't get respiratory distress in your in your lungs and um, which is often linked to organ failure, which makes you die. So it, it means you get far less sick. I don't think it's so, so much linked to the fact of whether you get a cough or um, but it's it's linked to the fact that do you fall severely ill, so ill that you can't breathe on your own. And that seems to happen far less often than with other variants. One of the things that featured heavily in response to Omicron, despite those initial suggestions it could be milder, were travel bans. What was the reaction to them in South Africa? So, you know, the strongest tool we have in the world to fight a pandemic is data. And because pandemics are global, countries really need to work together to gather good data and they need to share it and have partnerships so that they can use that data to fight the pandemic. And that means that countries need to be transparent with data. Otherwise, you won't have data from another country that can that you can use to help to fight it. And in the case of Omicron, both Botswana and South Africa were extremely transparent with the announcement of Omicron, even though that they knew it could potentially lead to discrimination and stigmatization because people would say, oh, it's our countries, you know, who who allowed the, the variant to emerge, although it could literally have emerged anywhere in the world. And we were then very transparent and announced it immediately. But instead of that um, rewarding that transparency, we got slapped with travel bans. We essentially got punished and we became very concerned that that would mean that other countries that detect a variant would be discouraged from talking about it or announcing it quickly because of that potential discrimination. And in South Africa, you know, you, the, the countries that slapped us with travel bans, Western countries um, didn't just slap like um, or give a ban South Africa and Botswana, it was almost like the entire Southern Africa. But yet other countries in the Western world, the way Omicron cases had also been detected, they didn't impose the same travel bans on them. Now, you could imagine in a country like or on a continent such as Africa, that has mainly been colonized by many of these countries. The perception is if you then treat us differently, you know, with a history of colonization, you still view us differently. People started to ask here in South Africa, so is our Omicron different from the Omicron that's circulating in Europe? Or are our vaccines different? Because why are there different rules for us? And South Africa, with our history of apartheid, where race is, you know, a, a big issue in our country, many people viewed these travel bans as just downright racist and discriminatory. Do you think South Africa's experience with Omicron will put other countries off from being as transparent about new variants? Well, it is, of course, possible, because if you get 
punished for being transparent and get discriminated against, then it makes you less likely to, to be transparent. And to give you an example, for instance, there was a Spanish newspaper during these travel bans that had like comics in their newspaper on a little boat with a South African flag with black Africans in the boat wanting to move over the ocean to Spain and then the boat was named Omicron. Um, of course, if you get labeled that way, then you're going to be less likely to be transparent. I don't think South Africa will be less likely to do, be, be transparent. Um, but I think countries with fewer resources than us, you know, could possibly think, why would we tell the world if we're going to um, face so much discrimination? And I think this Omicron travel ban is a opportunity for the world to see what is the kind of discrimination and prejudice that we need to fix to be able to handle epidemics, future epidemics better. You touched on this in one of your previous answers, but what level of vaccine coverage is South Africa hoping to achieve this year? And just how much is vaccine inequality stopping them from doing that? So, you know, South Africa, our health department hasn't announced goals for this year yet, but obviously we would like to vaccinate everyone. We wanted to vaccinate 70% of adults with at least one shot of vaccine by the end of 2021. And, you know, we only got to 45% of that. So there certainly is a lot of work left to be done. But if you look at the continent of Africa, in terms of vaccine inequity, then South Africa is in a much better position. We've got more money, we're wealthier. And because of that, we are able to buy vaccines directly from drug companies, from the manufacturers. Most of Africa is not in that position. The only way how they can access vaccines is through COVAX, the World Health Organization's mechanism. And vaccine inequity has drastically impacted on the amount of vaccines available for COVAX to buy. Because they didn't get close to their goals and because the vaccines were bought up before um, anyone in Africa, you know, could, could even think of a vaccine, it means that Coverage in some African countries is as low as 1% or 6%, for instance, and Somalia, for instance, 6%. So if you look at vaccine inequity, it literally meant that the most vulnerable people didn't have access to vaccines. And it's not just governments of Western countries, it's also drug companies, because they, you know, one of the obvious sustainable solutions for this is to enable African countries to make their own vaccines. But they refuse to share their intellectual property rights, they refuse to share their know-how. So it's a very, um, a process that the Health World Health Organization started the project now, but for instance, Pfizer and Moderna refuse to show they, to share their new, they know how or to be part of this hub that the World Health Organization started. So it makes it very different. And to give you one stark example in South Africa, um, we have one company, Aspen Pharmacare, that Johnson & Johnson has contracted to do the late stage production, to basically fill and finish um, Johnson & Johnson vaccines in the country. About 
six months ago when South Africa had no Johnson & Johnson vaccines because there was an issue with production on their side. They allowed this company, they forced basically this company to produce, to fill and finish Johnson & Johnson vaccines, sent them to Europe during a time that South Africa didn't have any Johnson & Johnson vaccines. In the end, it was discovered and exposed and, you know, it was sent back to South Africa. But that is the kind of inequity that exists. Uh, to give you an example of Botswana, Botswana has ordered Moderna vaccines at almost double the price that European countries pay for them. They've still not received those vaccines. When it comes to who is first in the line for boosters compared to countries that don't even have first doses, a Western country is first in the line before an African country. So, you know, we start behind you guys. Um, and I think that a pandemic is again a mirror and it's like a microscope that shows the world what is it that needs to change because equity is going to change how we handle pandemics because if you continue to not give everyone access to at least a basic level of vaccination you're always going to see variants emerging and you're not going to be able to keep those variants in Africa or to wherever they're emerging they're going to spread. That's such an important topic particularly because in Ireland most of us have had three vaccine doses at this stage we have a previous podcast on the link between vaccine inequality and variants if people want to listen back to that. But if we look forward, Mia, when Delta first arrived, many people said it was going to be really hard for something more infectious to come along. And then Omicron did come along. But because it's so transmissible, does that mean it's going to be very difficult now for another variant to take over? Or is the lesson here that we can't assume that? What scientists are saying is that um, because Omicron is so infectious and will infect so many more people because it spreads so fast compared to other variants, we will develop very high levels of natural immunity and hopefully that will help us with having a pandemic that or an epidemic then that is more manageable in terms of, you know, the, the um impact that it has on a health system. But no one really knows what next variant will arrive. And no one knows if a next variant will, for instance, sometime in the future, be able to escape immunity better. And by that, I mean, make us less protected against severe illness. What we've seen with variants so far is that when they escape immunity, it's mostly antibody immunity. And that means the ability of the variant to infect you. But it mostly didn't escape uh, very well in any case. T-cell immunity, which is the part of your immune system that kicks in once you've been infected and go and kill the cells that have been infected so that you don't become very ill. So on that part, variants with all their mutations haven't been able to, to make such a dent in that. We're still quite well protected. But we don't know if that could happen in future. We know that it's much harder for a, for a variant to escape T-cell immunity than antibody immunity, but we don't know what could happen in future. But I think the end of a pandemic is not necessarily determined by the variant, although that plays a role. It's going to be 
be determined about how fast we can get everyone vaccinated because ultimately that's going to be our protection. And that means how well we're going to manage to address inequality and get countries to work together to um, to help countries that don't have vaccines to access it so that only once we have everyone vaccinated, um, we're going to be protected on the same levels and we're going to have variants stop from emerging so frequently. And I think ultimately that is where our, um, our solution is going to lie. Back in Ireland, we're around a week from the peak of this Omicron wave and we're worried about our hospitals. What has South Africa learned um, from dealing with Omicron that Ireland can learn from? So, you know, the interesting thing in South Africa is that um, because we are a country of vast inequality, we've had other epidemics, at least, that um, Western countries didn't experience to nearly the same extent. So in South Africa, we also have HIV and TB. So the lessons we learned from COVID is very similar to what we've learned from, from HIV and TB. And the most important lesson I think we've probably learned is that Without community involvement, you'll achieve absolutely nothing. So people won't come to test if you don't have community leaders who um, encourage them to do to get tested and then they won't get treated if they don't get tested. And in South Africa, that means involving traditional leaders and religious leaders and particularly community healthcare workers. The interesting thing if you look at COVID in South Africa is that our vaccination rates are higher in rural areas than in urban areas and rural areas are less resourced than urban areas. And you know what the difference very, very often is? It's the fact that there's such strong use of community leaders in those communities. So, you know, they go to traditional chiefs who explain the the value of vaccines and who encourage people to go for vaccination. They've got community health workers who literally go and and knock on doors and get people to come and get vaccinated. And I think our lesson from all of these pandemics is people are not going to adhere to their treatment. People are not going to get tested unless you acknowledge what a community wants. And that may translate to a slightly different context in a country like Ireland. But in my country, it certainly means that if you don't use grassroots people and if you don't get their approval, you can forget about getting people to access formal services. You need to start with the people um, that a community trusts most, and those are community leaders, not the heads of hospitals. More generally about Omicron in particular, is there a lesson here in how we should handle new variants of concern? So I think what we should learn is that, you know, we know the quicker you have the data, the faster you can act. And for that to happen, you need to reward transparency and skills rather than punish it like we've seen with Omicron. And ultimately, unless we address inequality, I think pandemics will always be around for longer than what they should because they like mirrors and magnifying glasses. They show society what the and the world what it looks like and is, you know, in many ways an opportunity for us to know what we should address and what we need to fix. And it's up to us. 
whether we're going to fix this or not. I think we're not going to fix inequality spontaneously. I think we're going to need formal structures that that helps us to fix it. And travel bans aren't the answer, probably as well. Absolutely not. Travel bans are just a manifestation um, of inequality. And, you know, we've got study after study in the world that has shown us that inequality is a driver of the spread of disease. If we, for instance, look at HIV, we see that the groups of people who are most affected, where the virus spreads the fastest, are the same groups that have the least access to healthcare services because they scared to use it because of discrimination. And those are groups like men who have sex with men or transgender people or sex workers. For instance, sex work is illegal in many countries. And if you have an illegal profession, then you're going to be very scared to access a professional service such as a health service where you could possibly potentially be identified as having an illegal profession. So we have evidence and science that shows us that inequality drives the spread of disease. It's no different in the case of COVID. If we're not going to get access to vaccines for all, inequality drives that spread of disease because we're going to continue to see variants. We're not going to see an end of this. So unless we use this opportunity of a pandemic being like a mirror showing us what we need to fix, we're not going to be prepared for future pandemics if we don't fix that absolutely fundamental inequality that drives the spread of disease. And that ultimately is perhaps the biggest preparation that we need to make for a future pandemic. Okay, that's a good note to leave it on. Thank you so much for joining us, Mia. Thanks very much for inviting me and having me. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and thank you to our guest, Mia, for joining us. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producer Nikki Ryan and my co-host, Michelle Hennessy. A special thank you as well to Stephen McDermott. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can listen back to a previous episode of The Explainer, which looked at vaccine inequality and how it might be linked to new variants. If you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly or one-off subscriber. You can also leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to help other people find us and to listen to our work. Thank you. Slán Pámel.